The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello, Ilya. Hello, Ben. Special episode time. Special episode. Very excited about the special episode. See, several months ago, we were lucky enough to interview a fella, a dude named Checo Varese, who is a phenomenal DP and has shot some amazing, amazing movies that we both loved, but he wasn't able to talk about his most current movie. His most current movie, which is blowing up at the box office worldwide. Little, little, worldwide. little independent film called It Chapter Two. Little independent film that's now grossed over $220 million. So this little movie that he made, and I don't understand why they would embargo it, because I even heard that there was a book uh, <laughs> that it was based on that came out in the 1980s. But it, but it was a little book. It's not like it was written by Stephen King or anything. No, not, <laughs> not written by Stephen King. It was named, written by somebody named Stephen King. Oh, I think. oh Stephen so. King, yeah, yeah. And, not, oh, wait, they hadn't already made a TV miniseries about this, had they? Not in the least, no. Okay. And John Ritter wasn't in that either. <laughs> Um, anyway, so you and I last week, uh, got an opportunity to catch a, I think, uh, one or two days before the movie came out, we got to go, uh, sneak preview, see a sneak preview. Yeah. Uh, and it got like a standing ovation when it yeah, was over. It sure did. Checo is, uh, is a treasure. He's a wonderful guy. He's, he's phenomenal and interesting to talk to. He has such a unique and, uh, nuanced view on, on what he does and, and how cinema is put together. I, I love talking to the guy. Ooh, ooh. We should also though throw out right now that if you haven't seen it maybe you want to go watch it before you finish listening to this yeah, episode we might we might just let the spoilers flow but anyway so Checo very graciously agreed to come back and sit down and talk only about it chapter two so uh you know we might touch on a couple other things here and there but we're mostly just talking about it chapter two and there's a lot going on visually in it chapter two beyond everything else I mean there is it's and and he he talks about it. I'm not going to give it away, but yeah, it's there's a lot of stuff going on in that movie. Yeah, it chapter two is kind of a master class on keeping like many 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 plot threads alive and coherent and cohesive, and also being super scary the whole time through. Oh, and and visually, you talk about plate spinning. There's probably like nine or ten different plates he's got spinning at any any given moment, and I'm sure he's he's you know stepping away from the dolly, running over to this plate, giving it a little extra spin, <laughs> and then running back over to another plate, and and the only way that makes sense is if you you see the movie so if you haven't seen it chapter two go uh, see it now or uh, read the book or risk having all of that sort of fun stuff uh, yeah, yeah you're gonna have some stuff spoiled but uh but i think it's uh it, anyway it was great to, to bring checo back and hopefully we'll bring him back on his next project he's just uh the warmest sweetest guy all right and let's go to the interview <laughs> The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Uh, we are doing something special today that we've never done before. Very excited. We're doing a follow-up. Months ago, we did a live podcast with Checo Varese talking about uh, his career up to but not including It Chapter 2 because he was on an embargo and couldn't talk about it. But now, since It Chapter 2 has been released and is a giant, enormous worldwide hit, Checo has graciously agreed to come back and kind of discuss uh some of the it chapter two uh the the art behind it the the intentions behind it and uh so so we're excited to have you back thank you very much for coming back 
Thank you, and uh, I'm honored to be back, and now I can talk about the things I was not supposed to talk, and <laughs> were a secret, but I think a few hundred people, more maybe, saw the movie, so <laughs> I'm not going to get any spoilers, alerts, and uh, the Warner Brothers police is not yes. going to show up in the office. But we should say, if you are listening to this and you haven't seen It Chapter 2 and you don't want it spoiled, we're probably going to spoil some things, because we're here to talk about It Chapter 2. Ilya and I both saw it last week, actually. Really enjoyed it. It was great. So first off, there was something that you had brought up when we spoke before, and that's that you said that you had not specifically sat down and met with the DP of It Chapter 1 previous to doing it, but you said that there was some update of that. Yeah, the day the movie was opening, coincidentally, I went to visit my colorist uh, for other reasons because I'm doing a project, and so I asked in the in the front desk, where is he? And uh, they said in theater too, so I knocked the door and uh, Stefan Nakamura, a wonderful colorist, opens the door and says, see who's here. And I looked and it was Chung Hoon, the director of photography of the chapter one. Oh, wow. And we hugged and we'd smile and we took pictures and sent it to the director. And it was a complete serendipity and complete coincidence. And uh, we were very happy. The movie hadn't opened, so I was very excited and he was very excited he was very complimentary of, of the, so he had the seen it he hadn't seen it no, oh, no okay he hadn't seen it and um but that was a coincidence so now we know each other so now that i've seen the movie there are a lot of scenes that like when it when it first started there were a lot of scenes that f- almost felt like they were outtakes from the original because they had the cast of of everyone young but obviously they're they're part of chapter two, so they're part of your storytelling for chapter two specifically and not not anything a part of that. Uh, firstly, I was like, was anyone afraid that the kids would visibly have aged between uh, it chapter one because they're all you know uh, teenagers basically? Well, there were several challenges, but the most important thing I have to say is that the respect for the audience and the respect for the memory of the audience of it chapter one was something Andy, uh, the director, was extremely careful about it. We used one scene, I recall correctly, maybe I'm wrong, but in one scene we lift from each chapter one, and it wasn't an outtake, it was actually a scene that was in the movie, for a brief moment, and that scene introduces us to the new scene that we shot two and a half years later. And obviously these are very young and healthy uh conflicts eating kids so they all grew up very fast yes so that's a technicality i'll go into that in a second but especially the challenge was you want the audience to believe you're witnessing what happened to this kid 27 years before and you saw that in the prior movie and most people remember it correctly or, or or accurately so we use lenses that were very similar to the lenses used in chapter one. We use camera moves very similar. We went to the same location. There was a very, very conscious effort of duplicating the wardrobe, which now we wouldn't fit them. So we had yeah. they had to do them again and new and makeup and hair and etc. was extremely careful to replicate what they shot before. Some of the kid had a, a they grew more than others. So, and this is public record because everybody talked about it uh, in, in the press. They, they digitally de-aged the kids. Oh, wow. And it's a process that started several years ago with a, several companies, 
Wait, can I get rid of that wrinkle? Can I get rid of that pimple? Can I add a, like a wrinkle? Mm -hmm. And then you have something as sophisticated and extraordinary as Benjamin Button, which is the, the epitome of that. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. But then you get a, a, a kid that has grown maybe two and a half inches, but he's also changed his facial features. So the chins are a little higher and the nose is a little bigger. So they did a fantastic job of scanning them and recreating a few features digitally, but based on the actual kids. So I think it looks great. I, I mean, like, I didn't catch it at all. I assumed that it had to have been something like that um, because, obviously, it, to me, the only other option would have been that they knew that they were going to shoot all those scenes, you know, two and a half years ago, and, and they shot them. So a question that that kind of puts in my head is, what do you do on set when you know you're going to be digitally going in? And, and, like, does it change your job? Does it change how, how you set up a shot or anything like that? Are you, are you protecting for visual effects? There are some practical things we did, and they're very few. Like, let's say they were like four feet five, mm -hmm. and now they are four feet seven or five feet or whatever the number is. So we, when we match them with other characters that were not well known in the movie or other kids, we, we picked a, a higher double or higher extra to walk near them, or mm. we picked a, a, a table that was a few inches higher so you look like there is a smaller person in front of the table. But that was very minimal. Um, in terms of technically, there were some angles that, that we discussed with Andy. It's like, this doesn't look very good on the left side of the face. It's better to place them on the right side because the right side hasn't aged as much or, or, or doesn't look like aging mm. as much. But that was something that we, we did in, in, in test and we did in the pr weeks prior to shoot. Um, the actual procedure of shooting was no different than shooting a normal scene. Um, the only thing is you had to do a pass of the background sort of like a plate. So you shot the scene and the kids are doing whatever they're doing and then now you take them away and you keep rolling the camera or you roll again the movement. So whatever missing information, because you're either shrinking them or stretching them or something, then that missing information in the background doesn't exist. So you don't want to recreate it. You just want to grab it from your plate. Yeah. But yeah. that was only... It didn't affect the way we shot. It was almost subconscious. It, I never thought the kids were younger or older. I just thought those were the kids we had cool cool so it is a very full movie it's almost it's uh like almost three hours long two and a half hours long right when you first approached the material how did you look at it especially knowing that you're sort of picking up where another story left off but it really does have its own very clean beginning middle and end of of, of its own as a as a self-contained story how did you look at kind of creating the visual arc of of the story in and of itself? And how much of the arc are you completing from the previous story? I think one of the main driving forces in every movie is the director and uh, the script. And in this case, I would say Andy Muschietti is not only a driving force, but is a lot of locomotive that is dragging <laughs> all of us behind and you better jump in the train and, and you get ready for it. Andy had all the move in his head. Um, whether he revealed it to us or whether you realize it after watching the movie and watching every transition that he created on camera and they're all, all there, 
with the help of a brilliant editor, there is Jason Ballantyne, or sometimes a few effects here and there, but all the, all the transitions were there. So Andy had very clear ideas on how the movie had to look and how the movie had to work. When it comes to the cinematography of it, of it and, 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 and the camera language and the camera move, all that was discussed deeply or sometimes very uh, casually with Andy. You know, he would walk into a set and he would say on the scene of uh, when Beverly, the Jessica Chastain character, goes back to the original apartment she used to live and there is an older lady and then there is this whole scene with her. Terrifying scene. A terrifying whole scene. Very terrifying he went into a set and he talked about it because he knew the set from the other movie for me it was a new set mm-hmm. and the only question I really ask him is so what is the what is the feeling of, of Beverly when she comes here or Jessica and he goes no it's, it's, it's welcoming it's a little creepy but it's not creepy it's welcoming it's a nice house owned by somebody else so the, 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 the set dressing or the dressing or the decor of the house is different and I just ask so what time it is? Not time in the story, but where is the sun? Well, so he pointed at a window and he said the sun is somewhere there. So we started building on just very generic and very sort of emotional things that Andy gave us. And that's how I can explain the rest of the movie. Everything was sort of... Andy's very tactile. He almost touches the frame to correct and adjust things. And in that same way... He worked with illustrators and he was coming very excited. Look, this is a new drawing and look at it. It's great. Look at these colors. This is how I think it should look. So the art department would paint the, the, the rocks, the, the fake rocks, and we would light them. And I said, well, the light will affect it, so it's going to be a little greener and more red. So he would go there and say, okay, let's, mo- let's put more red so it, it's redder or more green. Mm-hmm. Or I don't think the green shows enough. So it was a very organic process throughout it. Um, I have a question that uh, probably was like the biggest thing that I kind of walked out with, which is like the last half hour of that movie. It it almost feels like a like a climax of a of a Pixar movie or a, a Marvel uh, you know superhero movie. Like it is one massive third act sequence, one ass, massive uh, you know boss battle with with it. How much of that was, I mean, I assume that that had to have been like boarded and pre-vised and, and pre-thought out within an inch of its life. But it's such a building, building sequence that just, it's just a machine that keeps going. What, what was the contribution that you were giving? Like what, where was your job in creating that sequence? Did they come to you with the sequence fully built? Did they talk to you about, you know, what angles, blah, blah, blah. There's also obviously a lot of CGI. So you're shooting a lot of stuff. I'm assuming that, you know, a, you know, a giant it spider monster that's, you know, 23 feet tall is supposed to rummage through like, like walk me through the process of making a sequence that accomplished and amazing. I have to burst the bubble of oh no of of your feelings, and I'm, I'm sorry if I hurt you with that. Oh no, no, it wasn't previst. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was thought out. Yes, it was down to a science thought out in Andy's head, uh, and that was delivered to all of us practically on sets. Okay, okay let me re- let me retract. And I'll retract on the record. It was previst, but it wasn't previst down to a science like you previs a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. A Marvel movie, 
there will be the animator or the visual effects supervisor that will come to you and say, okay, that wall is too green. I assume I haven't done a Marvel movie. Um, the time's coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 but that wall is too green and the lens has to be lower and it's a 50 millimeter lens and this is what happens in the background. Let me yeah. show it to you. This was completely different. This was a real set with obviously green screens and all kinds of gadgets all over the place, but it was a real set that we built on a real stage that you could touch it and you could feel. And Andy will walk around and say, oh, that rock is too sharp or that rock. Can we put another piece of dirt here? Mm -hmm. And, And then the actors will literally be on set doing the things they do. I mean, obviously, Pennywise turns into this big creature, and, and for the ones I'm not going to see it, I'm not going to spoil it too much, but turns into the big creature. So obviously, Bill Sasgard, it's a very tall guy, but not as tall as the yeah. final result. <laughs> so there, there, is a, there is a method to the madness, which is a, a, a young gentleman with a painter pole and a tennis ball at the end. So everybody mm-hmm. looks in the same direction. and But it it was very practical, and I think one of the, which which is at the end of the day very laborious and very painful to do it for real. You know, it's probably sometimes better to just build something digitally and hope for the best. Well, the world doesn't look digital in it, but I, and I I bring up previs because um, uh, whether it, whether previs was used or storyboards or whatever. It's such a constructed sequence. Like it's, you know, like some sequences are like a perfect cuckoo clock that like this happens, then that happens and this happens. And it doesn't feel like, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to um, to Guillermo del Toro, who uh, I, I one of the things I love about his work is he doesn't tend to shoot coverage coverage. He tends to have one shot that leads to the next and it's all very designed. I, I feel like even his dialogue scenes are sequences a lot of times. And uh, and to me, this was. A, a sequence like like on par with something you'd see from Robert Zemeckis or and that's what even why I bring up like Pixar I feel like a lot of that comes out of the tradition of animation where it's like one shot leads to the next leads to the next it is there's not like a coverage it doesn't feel covered if that makes sense I completely make sense Andy shoots in a way that is very organic so what we did is the actress the actors, the, the characters will have to go from point A to point B and hide in point C and mm-hmm. jump from point C to point D. We'll map that throughout the fictitious set or the or, or the, the place itself in, 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 in the world, and then we'll map the reality of it on set, and then we'll just shoot it. And then we'll change it depending on what we could do, and we would run and say, oh, I think this is too short of a run, so let's start even deeper. Okay, mm-hmm. so we had to relight it even deeper. So we, we had to be ready for every eventuality. And when I say it wasn't mapped, it wasn't previous, it wasn't previous down to a science, but it was preconceived with various systems. Andy, it's a great storyboard designer. I mean, he, he's a great artist. So he would take a chalkboard or whatever, a whiteboard, and draw it very quickly. And you'll understand where the camera would go, and you understand what the actors would do and the characters would do. And for, for Pennywise, we will have a, a, a oversized picture of Bill Sasgard's face at the end of a poll and people would come and attack the actors with the poll. So the reactions were very, very organic to that. So mm-hmm. I think it's a combination of a 1950s movie and a 2019 uh, visual effects galore. 
No, that that's that's cool to hear, and it's also it's it's interesting to hear because I always like you know when you say he he maps it out, so he would sketch out he would sketch out like live on set he would like draw a board and say like okay we're gonna do this we're gonna do that like did they have like a, a whiteboard set up yeah, as a director station he would have a a little whiteboard like a I don't know four by four whiteboard that we would carry around somehow and then we'll end up and he will say let me show you and he will map something and and then we'll all understand what is after the rehearsal and before shooting um not to get too granular but it's it's like a drawing of the shot he wants to see or when you say a it's map, a drawing it it's overhead? a drawing of the shot it's okay. literally a drawing of the shot and and i just heard or i internet or whatever i instagram that they're having a coffee table book uh being published uh or they it came out yesterday so i'm re- really looking forward because it, one thing i remember from andy is him with the with the black sharpie or whatever the black erase <laughs> thing and and going around drawing this very elaborate with like three strokes a very elaborate storyboard that will oh, wow. reveal what it is two-dimensionally obviously you know but um mm. it was very i have to say it was very uh handy it, it was like a jewelry piece it's like you weld a little piece here you weld a little piece there and all of a sudden you have a faberge egg Mm-hmm. that you open and open and open and there are the other eggs inside. It was very handcraft. It was almost, I would say, it's almost made with the hands as opposed to there is a green screen and everything happens back there and nothing is real. Most of it, obviously within limits, most of it was real. Yeah. And that that is very refreshing. What about sequences like uh, flying Pennywise on a giant? I mean, like I assume that a, like a lot of those balloons were, were, were CGI, but like, you know. He had, he had, several balloons with him not the the perfect triangle mm-hmm. whatever it is the perfect uh, reverse pyramid and he had a few balloons and we flew him with a construction crane and with some stunt rigs and the fly you see is the actual path he took on set with the people around so they it, did they did that mostly practically even of course there is some affection i yeah. think i mean we had to erase the cable where he has hanging but but he's yes, really up there it's it's really up there it was very it's a very nice i mean you you always have some security around you and pl- asking people please don't take pictures but we were in port hope in 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 ontario in toronto and um i remember walking from a coffee shop or to a coffee shop and overhearing a conversation of a dad going to see what we were doing to the two kids and saying Please, please, please. They told us not to take pictures, so I left the cell phone home. We cannot take picture of this because people want to see the movie and don't want to know what happened. <laughs> and I don't think there has been any pictures in the internet of this event that happened. Yesterday, after the movie came out, or a few days ago, I started seeing them. So people was very respectful of that. And that, that was fantastic as a relief in this era of <laughs> no secrets anymore, anywhere. Well, the Canadians are wonderful people, so. Yes, uh, I, yes, yeah, you're right. If we would have shot somewhere else, probably yeah. wouldn't, have, wouldn't have been the case. <laughs> if you'd shot in Burbank, it yeah. would have been, <laughs> there would have been nothing you could do. Yeah. So uh, like when Ilya and I were watching it, I forget if it was Ilya that said it to me or if I said it to him, but I was like, I wonder what was larger, the, the Hayes budget on It Chapter 2 or the bullet budget on uh, John Wick. Like like it is a hazy, hazy, hazy movie and it is thick with atmosphere. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, about how you create the atmospheres that you created in that? We had a great uh, special effects mm-hmm. crew the people there are wonderful. Unfortunately and, and tragically, the head of the crew 
and there is a memorial at the end of each chapter. Oh, I saw two. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Warren Appleby, a genius and a wonderful he, he human. He was a special being. effects guy. Yeah, he was a special, oh. the head of the special effects department. And he did all Andy's four movies, so they are friends. Oh. And he had an accident a few months ago in, 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 in a special effects test, and he passed away. Oh, I'm so With, sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's, uh, it breaks my heart and it breaks my voice. He's a friend. I haven't been able to erase his cell phone from my cell phone. Oh, let's put it that way. He's sad. a wonderful man. I'm sorry to but any Anyway, that. no, no, no. It's 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 an homage to him and, and his family. Um, we had a sort of a shorthand, and uh, not with him, but with his crew. And we would go there and say, okay, show me the smoke. So it's like from one to five, this is three. Mm-hmm. So depending on which lenses you have, if it's a longer lens, you want less atmosphere. If it's a wider lens, you need more atmosphere just because of the, the parallax of the lens. So they would come to me and they would say, is this a three or a four? And I would say, no, I need a four or I need a five or I need a three. So they were really on top of that. And it's very sophisticated yet primitive system because it's basically you're filling up a room with smoke yeah. you know with with i mean it's a sophisticated machine and we can all breathe the smoke until somebody finds out that we shouldn't have had or yeah, in yeah. a few years but uh, but, <laughs> but it is also we, then we shouldn't go to rock concerts oh, and exactly or, or or don't keep the bb little bullets in your mouth because they're made of lead oops i did it for the first 15 years of my life so <laughs> oh. don't drive a car without a seat belt uh, but anyway, so no, it's a very sophisticated machine, but it's a very primitive system. You just go and with your naked eye, you look at a light and you see the shaft of light and you look and you say, well, maybe it's only 20. Yeah, that's a five. Keep it there. Well, and, you know, I, I don't think we've ever really discussed this on on the podcast at all. But like when you're doing when you're shooting a scene where there's a lot of haze or a lot of smoke or whatever, you end up spending more time just keeping it consistent it, do you have a way or a trick or a tip on how to on how to keep it consistent? Rely on the fantastic special effects people that are around <laughs> me. <laughs> the the biggest trick for a cinematographer, I have to say, is you reveal your sources. The source mm-hmm. of light gets revealed because yeah. if you have a light, there, let's say you're in the room and there is a practical here and a practical there, but you also have a little bit of overhead because you need some ambience. Once you put the lens, the practical creates a glow with the smoke or with the um, the atmosphere, but also the light you have above people's head create a glow. So you, th- there is a sweet balance between having that or revealing where the other lights are not supposed to exist. Yeah, are so that's where it becomes really tricky. The 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 continuity and the maintenance of it, it you're completely in the hands of a wonderful special effects crew. That if they go and have a coffee outside or smoke a cigarette then you're you're dead <laughs> well if they smoke a cigarette maybe they can smoke enough cigarettes exactly. that it, that or it... you should please uh, stop smoking before you come in so you don't have to go outside <laughs> so when you're uh you, you've talked a little bit about this but i feel like uh pennywise takes many many forms over the course of the movie and a lot of them I believe are visual effects enhanced at least like a lot like there's a there's a lot of VFX and uh, when you're when you're talking about Andy working in kind of a, a a very organic way did you guys know where all of the big VFX moments were going to be and did you have to did it did it uh, change your your process at all I I have to credit 
to Andy and Bill Sasgard in, 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 in the visual effects team, the fact that he was never hindering the process. Yeah. Uh, you'll have Bill performing as the, this fragile little clown that it's nice and tries to lure a young little girl towards him with a firefly. Oh, he God. catches the firefly and it's a beautiful moment and he opens his arms, sorry, his hands and the, the white gloves create a beautiful glow in his face. And then in the process of shooting, eventually he launches forward. That's as much as I knew mm-hmm. until I saw the movie. And when I saw the movie, I almost had a heart attack seeing <laughs> what the result of that launch forward was. Um, yeah, they give you a hint, but then for six months, somebody's closed in a closet uh, designing what the launch would look like. And you're never preview of that. So yes, but like you're creating the 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 foundation for all of these. And and I'm not necessarily talking about the big big sequences at the end, but even like the smaller sequence in the Chinese restaurant. I mean, it's not small. It's a huge sequence in the Chinese restaurant. Oh my god, but- that 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 <laughs> so hard to shoot sequence in the small Chinese restaurant. Yes, that one. <laughs> That sequence or the like the oh, and you know, actually a big question I, I had watching it too was it, it felt like there were a lot of very conscious homages to lots of other movies. There's an obvious mo- nod to John Carpenter's The Thing, but also there's the scene in the in the House of Mirrors. And I was like, did you guys look at Lady from Shanghai w- when you were doing that? Because it felt so reminiscent of uh, of Orson Welles's Lady from Shanghai. I have to say I'm pretty agnostic when he gets to homages to mm-hmm. other projects and other movies, I my my memory is very, very selective. I try to be as fresh as possible. And obviously, human beings are the accumulation of knowledge. Yeah. So nothing is new. I mean, Pennywise is actually a Greek monster in Odysseus' adventure. And it was written... Two thousand really? years ago. Well, it's it's the the, the enemy and the the yeah. antagonist and the protagonist is like any oh, yeah. myth, any myth. I just world. wanted to know that in ancient Greek mythology there was a clown that ate babies. Yes, but it didn't have the little red lines. <laughs> so I think we all we all use references from other things. I don't recall I don't recall that movie right now and I mm-hmm. don't recall talking about it. What I recall is Andy mentioning he goes in the house of mirror. And I literally had to sit down and said, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? Yeah. And uh, little by little, we created first a drawing and then a storyboard. And then the art department created a mock-up to scale probably the size of a craft service table. Mm -hmm. And we put little mirrors there and we bought a $15 spy camera attached to a pencil and, (laughs) and, you know, and sent to a an iPhone and then we were moving the camera and I like, oh my God, now I see the camera. So let's tweak this mirror, this mini mirror, six inches tall. And then we push, oh my God, I see it now. So let's tweak that one and let's tweak this one. And we got to a point where we, in the path of the camera, following James McAvoy, we only saw the camera three times in this little mock-up. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the set, the, the art department has translated this into the set and we only saw it three times maybe four times. Yeah. And that was a very proud moment because it was then again very tactile, very old-fashioned. I mean, I guess I just assume at this point in history we just paint out cameras when we see them in reflections. Yes, but if we would have had not been able to paint the cameras, 
the scene was constructed in a way that you could have cut to the other side. Yeah. So it was a very proud moment. It's not like the camera is there all the time and you paint the camera out or you put a yeah. green screen or whatever. We designed it in a way that was minimalistic in, in, in visual effects. Then, of course, I don't know how much they touch and probably when I say minimalistic is the budget of a small, you know, <laughs> independent movie for like 17 episodes. But that's a different conversation. That I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're working on a, on a different scale for, yeah. you know, with, with also different expectations than an independent film would have but I, I just like like there was there were so many moments of homage uh you know like uh, the fun house looked like the fun house from toby hooper's fun house to me I, I i haven't gone back and double checked to see if that was a direct homage and obviously the homage to the thing with the head with spider legs and then bill Hader saying you got to be fucking kidding me like that is literally what happens in john carpenter's the thing like exactly like that and and i thought it was it was Really, I was like, how many of these am I missing? Because I'm sure I'm going to see it again and I'm going to be on, on the lookout for all of the homage. I think we should drag in like three months Andy Muschietti here and the three of us should talk about it. And I think we can do that. I, I'm down. <laughs> Let's do it. It would be interesting to look at your because it's interesting to know that you weren't looking at Lady from Shanghai uh, because it's the most famous House of Mirrors sequence in film history and it would be interesting to look at them side by side because it didn't it didn't feel like the same kind of coverage that was in that but i think it you know it's one of those things where it's like if you're going to do a snow globe and someone dropping it at breaking uh, everyone's going to think citizen kane you know like it it it's one of those just iconic uh scenes and i and i wondered how much of it was intentional and also like you know orson welles didn't copyright uh shooting a scene in a house of mirrors so yes i have to i have to confess that Thank God I used to be a news cameraman and I was closed in a war zone in the 80s. So I don't recall most of any of that. In <laughs> uh, my baggage that I bring to it, it's more like, okay, how do we make it different? Yeah. And by making it different, I probably replicating what a DP said in 1953 in Orson Welles, yeah. you know, said, how do I make it different? And we all are a copy of ourselves in a different time and a different dimension or a different media, you know? So like at the end of the day, in the name of the rose, the book, it's a fantastic voyage through every single medieval story, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, Umberto Eco didn't copy it, but he gave homage like you're saying. So I, it's very interesting how that thing Th that ends up being a repetition in human history, but there's nothing wrong with having a cowboy going in the horizon and at the end and reversing to a woman crying because he abandons her. That's, you know, that's a cliche. Well, it's not a cliche. It's an homage to that kind of world. So I think it's all subconscious at the end of the day. Well, and none of it feels cliche. I, I no, 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 I, no. I don't mean you said that, yeah. but I, in my head, it, you're, you're giving homage to other mm -hmm. things without even knowing. Well, and I feel like as a giant horror fan, like when I spot that stuff, it's like a handshake. It's like the director yes. saying, like, I get you. I, I understand. And I also think Andy, it's, it's, it's a very sophisticated filmmaker. So he must have had those references somewhere mm -hmm. in his DNA, whether they were very in the foreground of his conscience or in the background of his conscience. That I don't know. So that's let's drag Andy here. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> let's totally do it. I think one of the things that it's interesting is how to create a world of horror in very real stories, which is what, like, the Jessica Chastain, let's say, arc 
mm-hmm. is the arc of a woman that has suffered uh, 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 an abusive father and she has fallen in the hands of an abusive husband and she finds the love of her life 27 years later. So that arc repeated by six characters and then matching with the arc of the six kids, it's I think what it makes each chapter two an epic enterprise. And um, yes, it feels like it, it is long because it is a long movie, but it's also full of each one of the stories. And those stories had to be developed. And I remember going with Andy and saying, there are six characters here. So in my head, it's like, okay, so there is a master, whatever you want to call it. But then there is the payoff of each character. So the, the, the Chinese restaurant scene, it's a massive enterprise. It's, yeah. They're sad, they're happy, they're afraid. Then the, the monsters come up and then there is like the, the, the relief at the end. Those are like three little mini movies, each one. And that way, I think Andy had it all in his head, and that was very refreshing. Well, there's a, a sense of that in the movie. Yeah, you're right. Where, in a sense, it's like an ensemble movie, but in a way, it isn't. It's like having six separate chamber pieces about these people and their individual situations and, and them overcoming them. And, I mean, it is possibly one of Stephen King's crowning achievements as a writer, that or The Stand or the Dark Tower series. And and it's interesting to look at it because each each character almost feels like the subject of a Stephen King short story almost. And they're all having completely unique experiences. Now, when you're when you're kind of laying out, and I guess this is maybe more of a writing directing question, but when you're laying them out, well I guess let's 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 find the cinematography angle in it. Do you differentiate the approach to say Jessica Chastain's arc versus Bill Hader's arc versus James McAvoy's arc. Are you are you finding like signature lenses, signature colors, signature approaches to the camera work? Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, one of my favorite scenes is not a horror scene. Mm-hmm. It's the, the the Losers Club reuniting at the end of one of the, the chasing back and forth of the information. They just got to Derry and they all get together in in what is the lobby of this little hotel and. Finally, Beverly sits down and uh, she starts telling them, I've seen you dead. Yeah. I, I, I've seen you. So we all die. I've seen you how you die. And they all start asking, how you know? That's, that's not true. That it's beep. You know, I just say a curse word. So I just put my own beep in there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what we, she we does. We curse left and right on here. That, that, that. That what she does is telling them they're going to die in that fashion or this fashion. And somehow I looked at her in the rehearsal and then I created this. Then it's an homage to I don't know what movie I watched with my father in South America and Peru in an obscure theater. And I think it's Greta Garbo, but I'm not sure. But it's a very noir 50s. She is near a lamp and the lampshade creates a shadow that is right where her chin is. So I whisper into Jessica, there is a shadow right here. You, you can play it or not. It doesn't matter. So... And it was a very, very obvious shadow. So it almost looked like a mistake. Mm-hmm. But I said it to her and she looked at me and she put her hand and she looked and she got it. So she plays the scene with her eyes dark or darkish or darker. And then when she feels the tear coming out, she leans forward a little bit and there is a glimp of light that hits that tear at the right moment when she says, we all are going to die. That to me, 
is the best shot I've done in the whole movie. And it's a <laughs> close-up of an actress in front of a, shot, a shade of a lamb that I push around a little bit with a piece of chewing gum, probably. It was the <laughs> less sophisticated shot I ever done in the whole movie. And to me, that is what represents my most beautiful shot in the whole movie. That's awesome. And also, I would say that is kind of a horrific scene. <laughs> it's a horrifying nothing, scene. Nothing is not horrific in this movie. From the <laughs> moment a, a, a beautiful young man gets killed, thrown out of some kind oh, of bridge yeah. somewhere, uh, to the very last moment when you feel for Pennywise's future, you know, the whole movie, it's a ride into, into drama and into tragedy. I have to admit, I don't have a lot of empathy for Pennywise. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Oh, come on. It's a nice guy. The, the, the Bill Sasgar just had a kid. I'm sure, oh, sorry. I'm sure he's a super nice guy. Pennywise. Uh, yeah. Yes, I agree. Uh, Ilya has a question. I have to give you a tremendous amount of credit, too, because this movie, unlike many other movies, at any moment feels like it can be horror or comedy. There's a lot of very, very funny, funny bits throughout the entire thing. And even when you think like, oh, we're going to have a moment of levity right now. Boom. Here's horror. There's some sort of horror shock surprise thing that comes in and vice versa. Is it really almost one sort of feeling of general uneasiness that you try to create through the whole thing? Or are you consciously playing against the uh, maybe the setup? Because I, I love how in this movie you can't feel like you're watching a horror movie and then get some comedy. And then you can also feel like you're in now this moment of, of relief and get boom, the horror. I think you're right. And I agree with you a hundred percent. I tried to make the contemporary part, the, the, the older losers, because as we said before, the younger losers, it was an homage to each chapter one. So there, there were some rules to be agreed that we, we, we had to make it look like that so people would believe that you were watching these kids 27 years before. But in each chapter two, contemporary part or the older Losers Club, I had a more free palette to play with. And one of the things I, I really tried with Andy's blessing and, and Andy's help more than blessing, it done this pushing me to my the edge of my 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 limits. It's to make it as dark as possible, but yet keeping some kind of I could have been there at that moment, keeping some realism to it. And that was very hard, but it was also very pleasant because, as you say, it could have been us there having a conversation, and that was the lighting we we applied. I think Andy very successfully created a new genre, or maybe not, but recreated a new genre that is called the Dramoror. You know, <laughs> as, as we, we call it the Dramedy, this is the Dramoror. <laughs> well, well, there's some great Dramoror, there's great Dramoror in there because yes, you, you, you do definitely feel for uh, several of these characters as you go, you go along. And then at several points you go like, wow, this is really bleak. I don't know how they're gonna get out of here. And then of course, some of them do. I'm not. I'm not going to give the whole thing away. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be a horror movie if all of them got out in one piece. Oh that my God! Somebody dies. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in the original Poltergeist, nobody died. Oh really? True story. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, none of the characters were killed in the original Poltergeist. I actually, I think in the remake, they didn't. That nobody died either. Um, well, I, and I think actually, Ilya brings up something that's really worth talking about which is sort of the, the, the flip of horror and comedy because horror and comedy both rely on surprise in different ways. And uh, there are some very successful horror comedies that, that, that kind of play on both. 
but there's always that fear that if you get too horrific, the morbidity of it will make it unfunny. And if you get too funny with it, if you play into the levity of it, it will lose the stakes and, and not be scary. But you have a character and an amazing actor in Bill Hader who embodies the darkest kind of comedy throughout the whole thing. So so it kind of gave you a free license. But can you talk about maintaining that tone or did you do anything to maintain that tone specifically? I think Bill was, I mean, everybody was exceptional in the movie. I think Bill, because of who he is and his, and his character, he had an opportunity to to really embody it, what we all wanted to to say at every single moment, which is, you know, do you see this great, huge, big, bad thing coming to you, and you say, you gotta be kidding me. You yeah. know, everybody wanted to say that. He just got to say it, you know, and he said it in a precious and unbelievable way, you know. So, I think. We were very specific on the scares, mm-hmm. and we very designed scares, and Andy was very specific and very precise on the scares. I think the comedy or the relief or the tenderness was a little bit less designed, and it was, we, we let it happen, mm-hmm. or Andy let it happen. Andy was also very precise with the love or the or the care or the touching of a hand or the the, the gaze of, of love that Ben has towards Beverly. I think that those were very designed and very apropos or they're very on purpose. I think he let the the he let the reins a little bit less tight for the, the comedy release or, or the or the laughter. You know. I mean, do you, did he, uh, and again, this is maybe more of a directing question, but having somebody like Bill Hader, who is a brilliant comedic actor and writer and director himself, did he kind of let him ad lib stuff or was that all s- still pretty tightly scripted, but he gave him a little bit more room to be, to physically take up the space? I'm not sure about the process itself, mm-hmm. but I know for a fact that most of the dialogue was true. And, and very close to what the, the essence of the script was. Yeah, yeah. Or of the book or of the genre. But I do know that there was a lot of possibilities for, for improvement by the actors, whether it was Jessica that had an idea or James McAvoy or Bill Hader or the kids. I mean, with the kids, we were rolling constantly because they are the kids. And so... I wouldn't say improvisation, but I would say, yes, there was, the, the reins were very, very loose at that point mm-hmm. and the horses were galloping as opposed to when there was a scare or there was a, 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 an emotional moment, the reins were very tight. And when you say that like the, the scare moments were uh, very controlled, can you walk me through kind of the architecture like, and, and also how involved were you in creating those kinds of moments that, where, where the scares were? My involvement was more of the witness of of uh, an art form being performed, and I mm-hmm. was actually part of the. I was in awe most of the time <laughs> and trying to 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 follow the the process. You know, Pennywise lunches forward, and and Andy would sit with him for ten fifteen minutes in two apple boxes in on set and talk about it with Bill Sasgard, and then Bill would will do something, and Andy will repeated himself mechanically trying to say maybe what about this and they would literally work the scene 
down to a science and then we'll just push the camera in and record or roll on what Andy and him had worked and then he would stop and, and go back and look at it and think about it and then talk for another five, six minutes and then do it again. So they were very designed in a free way. Mm-hmm. But that's like in terms of the performance. And I but guess- that includes the camera moves mm-hmm. and includes the performance and includes the, 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 the distance that Pennywise travels and includes all of the things. So it, it, and the lighting was, you know, Andy would come to me and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now he's gonna travel another five feet. And when he lands, he needs to have the glow in the eyes and this and that and the, no backlight, but yes, only light from the ground. So we will adapt to that mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of flexibility and as much as you can, because then all of a sudden Pennywise opens the door and gets out of the room and there is a parking lot outside. It's not going to work. <laughs> but if he more or less contains himself to the set. We had a winning chance. And, and you just said no backlight. Was that, Were there any rules about how to light Pennywise? I was thinking about one particular event that mm-hmm. uh, Andy didn't like the backlight on him and we turn it off. Oh, okay. But it, it wasn't... The only rule is Pennywise has to be scary. Mm-hmm. And, and the scarier, the better. And the scarier, the merrier. So th- that was the rule of thumb. And, 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 and we found the lighting appropriate for that and the, and the spark in the eyes and the, the underlight, but not exaggerating without creating a shadow from whatever wrinkle he had in the makeup or in the prosthetic. So that was very precise. Um, but other than that, one of the things I tried to do, and, and that's something I, it comes from my years of another profession I had as a news cameraman, is you have to give people space to do things. Other than please asking Jessica Chastain, she has a little shadow on the left eye, or yeah. Pennywise because he's attached to a cable. But other than that, I'm not the kind of cinematographer that would say, well, you can only play in that corner. I don't think there is a kind of cinematographer like that. Yeah. Let me rephrase it. But I don't I don't believe in rigid lighting. I believe in homo- homogeneous lighting that you can have and play. And obviously, please don't come closer to the camera because there is no more focus, you know, and the camera <laughs> is against the wall, so we have to rethink about it. But other than those general rules, I think the most important thing is to leave space to people so they can do what they do best. Cool. Oh, Billy has another question. Yeah. There, there is such a diverse number of looks in this movie. You have so many. I, I, what, our, what our audience can't see right now is Checo is uh, making the, the shape of a gun with his hand and putting it into his mouth. So, yes. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, you just like, I know when we already talked about some of this stuff, but like the secondhand shop where with the, the cameo of Stephen King and the, uh, the, the carnival, but you must have, I feel like you must have spent weeks either on a stage or in a, in a, uh, or, or in a sewer because I mean you've got all this stuff like uh, like underwater it looks like or in the water and like there's there's I mean uh, I was caves. in the water yeah. you were in the water for that stuff really yes yeah. so, so I mean I'm, I'm sure it was a long shoot I'm sure no, there was a lot of stuff that w- that went that went on here but um, there's a consistency across all of it I mean it's consistently beautiful but there's also uh, a lot of stylized slow motion of like the kids riding on the bicycles and all, all kinds of like stuff that just, you know, it's a it's a different feel from one scene to the next, but it still seems married. How do you approach 
like, okay, it's daytime. It's a flashback. Oh, now we're, we're, we're our next thing's doing this. I feel like it must have taken a master amount of planning to come up with all of these different looks and then still have that thread that carries through. I can tell you a couple of things about that. The first thing is I surround myself with people that are brilliant at what they do. My gaffer, my key grip from Toronto, Scotty Phillips and Rico Emerson, my gaffer from uh, Los Angeles that came to work with me on that, David Lee, the operator, Angelo, Focus Puller, Dean. It's, it's, a, it's a handful of people or... Uh, <laughs> five handfuls of people that that make this possible and and keep me true and keep me honest to my desires and my passion and my expectations um nobody does this by itself the, the, every morning you would go to a set and you would climb an everest <laughs> and you arrive to the peak of the everest and you're like oh my god i did it so the next morning you go back to the set and you look up and there it is, Andy Muschietti on tip of the Everest saying, why are you late? <laughs> was an impossible, relentless, constant, long undertaking. And every day we had to climb the Everest and Andy was waiting for us up there and we all arrived and we all did what we had to do and we jumped out of the Everest ready for the next Everest the next morning. If there is a continuity and a flow in the whole movie, which I hope there is. Definitely is. It's, it was designed and it was cried and it was smoked packs of cigarettes and it was drinking glasses of wine and liters of coffee to, to organize this in a somehow cohesive way. That's what I got. I got I, those, are, those are the biggies for me. Yeah, is there anything else specifically from the movie you want to discuss? Four expressos right be after call, four expressos right after lunch, and a few at night right before going to bed because I needed to check on the dailies. That's basically <laughs> the rule of thumb. And have you, have you slept since? Exactly. <laughs> well, yes. The, the next day I slept for four days in a row. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for coming back, and, uh, and congratulations not just on uh, shooting the uh, number one movie in the known universe uh, at the moment, and uh, and I think one of the best Stephen King adaptations ever made, and I'm saying this as a lifelong Stephen King and horror fan. Uh, but congratulations for all that, but also just congratulations just for the artistic achievement of, of having climbed, you know, however many 80, 90 Mount Everests in a row and, and, and having a great movie to show for it. Thank you so much, guys, and a pleasure to be here. And let's bring Andy next time. Let's do it. So thank you again, Checo, for coming back and uh, talking to us about It Chapter 2. That was fascinating. Yes, and if you enjoyed that, definitely go back and listen to Checo at the Cinebeer Fest live event that we had going on here. It was a live interview. It's a it's a high-wire act because I'm not a professional radio broadcaster and, uh, and uh, you know, trying to trying to get all the questions out with a giant crowd of people is a lot of fun though man and he is he's just a is, is such a gracious person to talk to you did not fall off that high wire it turned out great and you can really hear even though there's a party going on in the background you can totally hear the podcast our our audio quality is definitely above average yes uh we definitely get a c plus so <laughs> Uh, it's a B minus. So, so check out the the live uh, interview that we did uh, with Checo. Uh, a few, it was a few months back. It was in May, right? It was June. June. It was in June. 
and and go support it chapter two because it needs money, man. It chapter two really needs your support. Um, yeah, it's only got made two hundred and twenty million. So. <laughs> it's only gonna, <laughs> so. it's only the number one movie in the world. So uh, again, thank you again, Checo, and it was a real pleasure uh, speaking with you again. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.